Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. A place where the tiny bar in Providence's Jewry District somehow managed to survive the pandemic despite social distancing requirements. When they say tiny, they mean tiny. The joke is, if they did the six feet apart requirement, it would mean one person at one end of the bar second person at the other end of the bar, and that's it. But they're thriving. Check out my story at globe.com slash Rhode Island. Today, we welcome onto the show Judge O. Rodri Thompson of the First U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. Judge Thompson has been a pioneer throughout her judicial career in the Rhode Island court system and now on the federal bench. She announced this summer that she would assume semi-retired status at the end of this year. We talked about her family background, why the judicial system must be a reflection of society, and a few of the memorable cases she has worked on. Her most high-profile decision came last year. She penned the opinion overturning the death sentence for Boston Marathon bomber Jokar Zanev. That's one case she would not discuss because it's currently pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. My conversation with Judge O. Rodri Thompson after a short break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Judge O. Rogery Thompson has served on the Boston-based First U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals since 2010. She was the first black judge and second woman on the First Circuit Appeals Court, and she was also the first black woman to serve on Rhode Island's district and superior courts. Judge Thompson announced this summer that she would assume senior or semi-retired status at the end of 2021. Judge Thompson, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Ed. Good seeing you. So what exactly does senior status mean? How much involvement in the appeals court do you expect to have going forward? And and why did you decide to make this move now? Well, probably for the first couple of years, 
I will remain quite active on the court. Um, I've got commitments to some upcoming law clerks, for one. Uh, but I enjoy the work. And so even though I will be in senior status, I will still be primarily working full time. And, and why did you decide to go to senior status this year? Well, I've been doing this now for 11 years. And uh, I think it's really important to give younger judges an opportunity to engage in this very important work. This will allow uh, the president to pick my successor and um, it will also be good for the court because it means that I'll be working and there'll be another judge on board because we are extremely busy. It's an extremely busy court. In, in January, you took part in the swearing-in ceremony for Judge Melissa Long, uh, the, fir the first black justice on the Rhode Island Supreme Court. Uh, she's the biracial daughter of parents who met in the Army, and she talked about how the Supreme Court's Loving versus Virginia decision in 1967 decriminalized her parents' marriage. Could you tell us a bit about your own great-grandparents and what the Loving decision showed you about the power of courts to make a difference? Yeah, well, my, my great-grandparents um, were biracial, and they were living in the South at a time when it was uh, very challenging for Black people. Um, one of my, my grandmother was actually born prior to um, the Emancipation Proclamation, so she was actually born into slavery. Um, and when Loving came around, it did demonstrate the power of the judiciary when the judiciary is so motivated to lean in that direction. I mean, remember that it was years of um, Plessy versus Ferguson where the Supreme Court, you know, same institution had said that separate but equal was just perfectly fine. So it took a, a, not only a change of the court, but I think the, the court in some ways tries to um, mirror what they believe the, the perceptions of the general society is. So I think that they saw the winds of change coming. And I think that they were willing at that point to take another look uh, at what they had said the uh, Equal Protection Amendment actually means and what it should mean. Judge uh, Judith Savage has written about how you were born in Greenville, near, near Greenville, South Carolina in 1951, and how your mother gave you the courage to face the limitations placed upon you by the segregated South. Can you, can you talk about what it was like growing up there at that time and, and what you learned from your mother? Well, I credit a lot to my mother simply because um, my father died when I was young. My father died when I was eight years old. I mean, he was a big influence in my life before that time. They both were. But then when my mother had to uh, take over and raise two daughters on her own, um, she saw the need to try to make sure that she was able to raise uh, some strong girls. <laughs> she wanted to make sure that uh, we got a good education because she saw that as the gateway to having a better life. And she it was not a matter of um, if we were going to go to college. It was only a matter of where we were going to go to college. And then beyond that, uh, when I had expressed an interest to her in going to law school, she continued to be supportive in that regard also. 
In 2009, then-President Obama, the first black president, nominated you to be the first black judge on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Can you describe what that moment meant to you, and, and what do you feel you've accomplished during your tenure on the court? It has been one of the most rewarding uh, experiences that I've ever had in terms of my professional life. I've enjoyed every single court I've worked on, but this has been a very different court to work on. Um, the, the kinds of work that we do on this court, uh, the way we, we do it, is, it's been very professionally rewarding. Judge Savage noted that on the First Circuit, you've issued what she called stinging dissents in cases involving immigration and qualified immunity for police officers, for example. And the Supreme Court relied on your dissent in reversing the First Circuit on a whistleblower case. Do you agree with Judge Nancy Gertner, who said this shows the enormous value of having different voices on the bench? I do, you know, because I would say that uh, 98%, 99% of the time, uh, the panels are in agreement with one another as to what the uh, outcome of a case should be. But on those occasions when we can't reach a unanimous resolution, I think it's important to have different voices speak to the way we view the, the, the way the law ought to be interpreted. And so there is certainly value when uh, people with different frames of mind coming together and having dialogue with one another and trying to think through issues and tr trying to come at it in an, in an honest fashion. Sometimes um, some of my dissents have um, led to others adopting a particular position. Sometimes they haven't. You know, that's, that's the nature of the work that we do. Um, when we spoke a few months ago, you said that uh, people need to be able to look at the judiciary and see themselves represented in the system. Can you talk about why that's so important? Because we always say that we are a nation of law. And fundamentally, what that means is that every single person uh, has to have respect for the law in order for it to be success. Otherwise, we would have a country of, uh, of anarchy and no one wants that. But in order for every single person to believe that they that the system is fair, that they have a fair shot at being heard, that their uh, disputes are going to be resolved in a fair manner, then it's important for people to see themselves as part of that judicial system. And I mean that everything from the judges on the bench to the marshals who protect us, to the people working in the clerk's office. People need to be able to walk into institutions and see that they are represented in those institutions from top to bottom. In 1999, the Providence Journal covered a Brown University forum where you addressed the question, is there racial bias in Rhode Island's criminal justice system? And you talked about handling arraignments in district court in Wakefield at the time and being presented with a group of white men and a group of black men. Can you describe the difference in the charges you saw that day? That was a very memorable day for me because the, uh, the first case that came through the courtroom doors involved some young white guys who were on Block Island. And as we say, they were liberating their neighbor's goods. In other words, they were committing B&Es, stealing TVs and stereos and all kinds of equipment. 
they were also students at Moses Brown. They were seniors at Moses Brown and they were all accepted into college. And when the prosecutor asked to approach the bench during the arraignment, he approached saying, we have worked out a deal. And when I asked about what the deal was, the deal was they were gonna file the cases on not guilties and order them to pay um, a contribution to the criminal um, indemnity fund. And I said, that's pretty lenient for what they're accused of. These are felony, you know, they had reduced the charges to, I don't know, I don't remember exactly, it was, it was misdemeanor charges, uh, but, to have, but to be reduced to misdemeanor charges and also uh, have it filed on a not guilty, I said, I, I can't, can't go along with that. Uh, but I did go along with uh, the filing and uh, a bigger contribution. The next case that came through the door uh, involved two black guys who were driving from New York to Boston. They had been pulled over, uh, the car was searched, and in the uh, glove box, they found a knife, a knife. And so they had the, the knife in the courtroom and when I looked at, and they had been pulled over, they had been held overnight, uh, so they were confined overnight and brought to the courthouse the next next day. Their car had been uh, impounded, towed from the scene. Um, and when I looked at the knife, I said, there's, first of all, the, there's nothing illegal about this particular knife because it wasn't, the blade wasn't long enough. And I said, and they wanted the the guys wanted to actually plead guilty just to get out of there. Hmm. And I said, and there's nothing illegal about transporting a knife. It's not this isn't possession of a knife. This is transportation of a knife. I said, otherwise, how would people get their knives from then apex home if if simple transportation of knives like this would be considered illegal? And what struck me that day, is that even though I dismissed their case, unlike the first group of people who had actually engaged in felonious conduct, these two had been deprived of their liberty for 24 hours sitting in a jail, and they had to come up with the expense of trying to retrieve their car. And it it just struck me that day that this is just such an unfair system when you look at how the disparate treatment between these two groups, you know, one, one set of Black kids and, and young people and uh, the other way the uh, young white people were treated. Let me ask you about Tate versus Bridgewater State University. Uh, black plaintiff sued Bridgewater State claiming she wasn't hired because she was not hired because of her race. And you reversed a lower court that had dismissed the case. You noted the university had given one set of instructions to the black applicant and a different set to a white applicant. And I see that your case is cited now in giving colleges guidance on hiring practices. What's the takeaway from that case? And is it an example of how you've had an impact uh, on the First Circuit? When I first got on this court, I have to admit that I often thought that these cases just don't get read, that this is sort of a theoretical court. 
But then when you see something like this, I had I, I subsequently Google that case myself, and I was really surprised to see all of the articles and that had been written about it. So for me, I, I guess I, I sort of felt like, huh, well, I guess some, what we do what we do does have importance in the real world. But it turned out to be a, a, a rather substantial case. Uh, but it essentially was laying down, going back again, it was laying down some principles of what fairness in uh, a job search should look like. Yeah, I agree. It's a case that's been read a lot. And the first sentence that you wrote was, this is a case about what makes people tick. And it reminded me that your decisions have a very distinctive voice to them and you write in a very accessible manner. Is that by design? When my law clerks uh, first come in and you know, we get new law clerks every year, the first thing I say to them is, it's important to me that, that what we do is accessible to people. And I said, it means that from my perspective, you need to use plain language and write, you know, work on uh, expressing what we're doing in ways that people can understand. That's been my philosophy from the time I was on the state court. I, it, if people, to me, if people can't understand what we're saying, then what's the point? You know, you've, you're often described in, in journalism stories as a trailblazer. Do you enjoy that moniker, and, and what does it mean to you? It means that I've always been willing to be a risk taker. And what I mean by that is that if you're not willing to put yourself out there uh, and take advantage, or at least try to take advantage of opportunity, in other words, if you're not willing to be fearless and if you're not afraid to accept no as an answer, because no is not going to kill you, then it means that you put yourself out there more and you accept the consequences of uh, your efforts. Some are successful and some won't be. Judge Thompson, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Here are a few other stories you should check out this week from Globe, Rhode Island. My colleague Dan McGowan has a must-read column about Javier Martinez. He was homeless, dyslexic, a dropout, and now he's the acting superintendent of Providence Public Schools. I traveled to Winsocket, Rhode Island to talk to a woman who has used naloxone to save four people from drug overdoses. Last year, Rhode Island set a record for accidental drug overdose deaths, and Winsocket, an old mill city in northern Rhode Island, has been particularly hard hit. My colleague Carlos Munoz explores the question, is graffiti a public nuisance or public art? Find all these stories and more at globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Caitlin Harrop, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Got a tip? Have someone you think we should talk to? 
We would love to hear your ideas. Send us an email at rinews at globe.com. And if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next Thursday. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.